All right, so Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So short passage. Uh, probably could have dealt with it last week. Uh, decided against it uh, because, well, there's a lot here. <laughs> there, there's a lot in these two verses, uh, and uh, it gives gives me as a as a preacher and a teacher a chance to say more. <laughs> And, and, and not try to cram it into a small uh, lesson. But here you have Paul's word of praise, word of doxology as he finishes his prayer. Uh, that's what we saw last time in verses 14 through 19 as Paul finishes his um, doctrinal section, as he finishes the, the theology that he wants to, to get across here. Uh, he prays. We saw that in verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays to God that, that the Ephesian believers would comprehend this love, that they would be filled with the fullness of God, that they would be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man. You saw this uh, Trinitarian uh, prayer here, uh, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, uh, comprehending the love of Christ and being filled to the fullness with the Father, with God. So that's his prayer for the Ephesians, that he, that as we contemplate this mystery of the gospel that we saw uh, earlier in chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel that, uh, which is summarized in verse 6 of chapter 3, which just speaks of Gentile inclusion into the people of God, that this was a mystery, that Paul was a, a minister a steward of this mystery, uh, that God called him to this task. So he prays that this mystery will take root in the hearts and minds of the Ephesian believers, that they would know this, that they would contemplate on this, that, they would, that they would, this would then move them to praise, which is what Paul does in the two short verses we're going to look at this morning. This word of praise. And this is, it's not just a word of praise that caps this prayer. It's a word of praise that really caps the first three chapters as he has been talking about and writing about uh, the, the glorious uh, uh, salvation that is ours in Christ that has worked before the foundation of the world. We see this in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, how we were chosen, how we were sealed, how we were redeemed, how we are made alive, how we are being fitted together, how we are being built up into a temple unto the Lord, it moves Paul to praise. And that's what we see here as he prays to him who is able and praises, praises him that to him be the glory. Those are really the two main points there. To him who is able, to him be the glory. And uh, the theme I want to kind of get across this morning, the idea that I want to get across this morning is God is to be glorified for he works by Christ in his church or in the church. God is to be glorified as he works by or in or through Christ in his people, the church. 
So we'll first look at verse 20, to him who is able. As Paul finishes the first half of the Ephesian letter here, uh, he again breaks into a prayer, as we saw, that the triune God would strengthen, dwell within, and fill his people. That's essentially what you see here in this prayer. And then uh, after the body of the prayer, Paul then breaks forth into a doxology. Uh, He's done this before. Uh, Think about Romans, the end of Romans 11. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you remember when we went through Romans, which was some time ago now, Paul there, after essentially eight chapters of proclaiming the gospel and then three chapters of showing how that will work uh, in uh, God's chosen people, Israel, at the end of chapter 11, he just breaks forth into this praise. In verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. And then he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages here. For who has known in the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it should be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So after expressing and and, uh, expounding the riches and the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul, at the end of Romans 11, breaks forth into praise. And then from there, he goes on, now how shall you live? So what you see here in a sense is a, a pattern, if you will, of the Christian life where doctrine leads to doxology, which then leads to duty. Teaching, truth, leads to praise, which then works itself out in practice. So that's what we're going to see here too. Paul finishes Ephesians chapter 3 with a word of praise, and then immediately in chapter 4, he says, okay, now, based on everything I've said, and, 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 and out of this praise to the Lord for what he has done to us and for us in Christ, how shall you live? And he goes on to describe the worthy walk uh, in chapters 4, 5, and and 6. So he breaks forth and bursts forth into praise. Of course, doxology just literally means a word of praise, a word of glory. And this word of praise is directed, as Paul says here, to him who is able, to the able one, to the one who is is powerful, powerful. the word there is, uh, is a variation of the Greek word dunamai. So uh, you may have heard this before. It just speaks of inherent power. It speaks of uh, the inherent ability to do something. So if you ever see in the New Testament uh, the word able, it's usually that word dunamai, which means to have some kind of inherently uh, inherent power, inherent capability, uh, inherent ability to do something. And Paul here is like, to him who is able, the able one, the one who is able. Uh, this is a great name for God, I think. <laughs> you know, I think this is a, an amazing name for God. The one who is able, able to what? Whatever, anything you could think of, right? Whatever you could think of, and that's what Paul says here, whatever, beyond what you can think or imagine, he is the one who is able. He is the able one. Um, In Daniel, in Daniel's prophecy, uh, chapter 3. Actually, it's not 
This part is not prophecy. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but there, uh, in chapter 3, verse 17 of Daniel, you know, the story goes is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has essentially set up a practice. He's built a statue, and he wants people to praise it and to worship it. Whenever they hear all of the music sounding, you know, there's like 17 different instruments. <laughs> when you hear the sound of this and this and this and this and this, you need to fall down and worship, and everyone says, okay, we'll do that, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then you've got the, you know, the, the tattletales, right, the little... Uh, kingly suck-ups or whatever who it's like we saw that Dan, you know that Daniel's three friends that Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they did not bow down to praise when the music sounded so they bring him in and the king says is it true and they say yes it's true and he says okay then into the fiery furnace to you with you in 315 he says and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands so Nebuchadnezzar threatens the three men it's like I'm about, you know, you know, it's like, I'm about to throw you into the fiery furnace. I'm about to stoke that fiery furnace. You're about to be burned. And who's going to save you from my hand, right? You know, and, and then the, the, the three friends say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In verse 17, if it is the case, our God whom we serve is able, Right? Who can deliver you from my hands? The God that we serve. He is the able one. He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And then he, they go on. It's like, and even if he doesn't choose to do so, we recognize his sovereignty in this. And if he, even if he doesn't choose to save us, we're still not going to bow down to your statue. But here, the, the three friends describe the Most High God as the one who is able one who is able. Uh, Paul, at the end of Romans, Romans 16, uh, as he closes that letter, in 16, verse 25. This is Paul's I would say it's Paul's benediction, but he gives like three or four benedictions in the book of Romans. Uh, Mark would know this. You watch the Lord of the Rings, and you get to the third movie, and you, know, you see a scene, and then there's a fade to black, and you're like, then, it, then another scene, and then another fade to black, and then another scene, and then the final fade to black. Uh, that's kind of like Paul writing Romans. It's like he gets to a point, and then he gives a benediction, and then he writes some more, and then gives another benediction, and then writes some more, and then finally closes here in chapter 16, verse 25, where he says, Now to him who is able, the able one, the one who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. There again, Paul describes God as the one who is able. And one more passage, uh, you know this one well, is the book of Jude. At the end of Jude. In Jude, verse 24. Again, this is a bit of a benediction at the end of Jude's small epistle. 
And there again, he describes God. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, and so on. Again, so here you have all these descriptions of God as the one who is able. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, when God appears to Abram in Genesis 17, verse 1, where he's about to establish or reestablish the covenant uh, and give him the covenant sign and make the promise that the covenant child, Isaac, will indeed come. He says, I am almighty God. Right? That, that's how God addressed himself. Now, you see it in Genesis oftentimes. You see the word Lord, which is the, you know, the, the way of writing the, the the, covenant, the, the divine name, the covenant name, but when he addresses himself to Abram in Genesis 17, he says, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai, right? We have a song, right? El Shaddai. And that word Shaddai means, again, one who is inherently powerful, one who is almighty. He is almighty, he is most powerful. He is described that way in Genesis 18, 14, Numbers 11, 23, Deuteronomy 10, 17, and on and on and on. God Almighty, the one who is able. Now theologically, when we speak about this, we use a word called omnipotence. Omnipotence, or all-powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He does all that he pleases. And there is nothing that, can, that cannot be done that he cannot do. I don't even know if I said that right. But <laughs> there is nothing he cannot do. Okay? There, is, there is no desire of his that goes unfulfilled because, again, he is able. He is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. Nothing is too hard for him. That's what he says again to Abram when he doubts that God can give him a child because he says, look at me, I'm 100 years old. Look at my wife, she's 90 years old. And God says to Abram, says, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer to that question? No. Why? Because he is the one who is able. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing can withstand his power. Oftentimes you see in the Old Testament descriptions of God's power as his strong right hand and his mighty arm goes forth. It's a great image of God's power. He's, his, his hand, he brings his hand and he uses his powerful, mighty right hand to deliver uh, his people. Then after saying to him who's able, Paul kind of, the phrase, you know, gilds the lily, right? He's like, okay, I got to say more about this. To him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. It's like he's running out of words. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all. He is the one who is able. Uh, New King James says exceedingly, abundantly. ESV has far more abundantly. NIV has immeasurably more. Christian Standard Bible, above and beyond. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And, and, and the phrase itself is, a, is almost redundant. It uses uh, a, a Greek um, 
uh, uh, preposition, which means above or beyond, and then the word itself is beyond measure. <laughs> so it's like he's just really piling it on here. Above, over, beyond, more than, more than, beyond measure, extraordinary. He's, again, running out of words. God is the one who is able, and he is not just able to kind of limp across the finish line. He is able to do far more abundantly, exceedingly above what we can ask or think. God is able to do the word there is, you know, it means to do. He can make things. He can do things above all things that we can ask of and that we can even imagine or think. So, you know, I could imagine a fair number of things. And I'm sure you all have fairly decent imaginations. And I'm sure there are people out there that can imagine a lot more. And you think, well, I can imagine quite a bit. And was, well, God is able to do ab- exceedingly abundantly beyond that. You're like, well, I can think of a lot of things. I mean, I, can, I have a very vivid imagination. God is able to exceedingly abundantly do more than that, more than you can ask, more than you can think. It's no wonder that Paul here breaks into praise. He is a able to do above all that we ask or think, and he, all that he does is exceedingly and abundantly. Whatever we can ask of God or even possibly imagine of God, even beyond that, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly. And then he says here at the end of verse 21, according to the power that works in us. So the power of God that is exceedingly abundantly able to do above all that we ask or think is the power that works in us. Think about that for a moment. It's the same power that works in us. Paul has hinted at this earlier. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19. Again, this is a prayer. In the middle of a prayer. And in verse 19, he says, and what is the exceeding great, I mean, it's almost the same kind of uh, verbiage here. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all uh, principality, and so on, and it's the power that works in us as well. The power that raised him from the dead, we see that in chapter seven, verse, chapter 3, verse 7. Um, the power that, that God gives to Paul to be a minister, uh, according to the effective working of his power, the, he became a minister of the gospel. Uh, Colossians 1, 29 speaks of this as well. Where Paul here talks about his his ministry, he says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. This power is the same power that works in us. The resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead will also work in us, raises us from our spiritual deadness, seats us together with him in the heavenly places, will glorify our bodies at the return of Christ, and is the power that's also working in us to sanctify us. Which is why Paul earlier prayed that we would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. 
that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may comprehend the, the vastness of his love and be filled with the fullness of God, that is the power that works in us. So Paul begins this word of praise by telling us about the omnipotence of God. He is able to do above all we ask or think. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is beyond his ability to do. And that very same power is now working in us. God has made us alive together with Christ and fits us together into a holy temple unto the Lord. So now to him who is able, Paul now shifts in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church, as he says here. To him be the glory in the church by or in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So from him who is able, Paul shifts to say, to him be the glory. Again, this, this is why it's a, it's a doxology. He's, the word glory, doxa, it means glory or splendor or grandeur, brightness, brilliance. And uh, it also has, a, it, it's used to translate the Hebrew word kabod, which also has the same things, but also speaks of substance, weightiness. So to him be glory. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one is, one of the most famous questions ever, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you can even say we glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's not really two separate things. It sort of feeds into one another. You enjoy him, and in that en enjoyment of of God, he, he is glorified in all of this. We talk about God's glory being displayed in his deeds of creation and redemption, right? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Uh, we, in a sense, being made in the image of God, show forth the glory of God. Which is why when we sin, Paul can say in Romans 3.23, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because we've sinned. We've broken that image. We've shattered that image. It's still there. We still are in the image of God, but that image is shattered. It's marred. It's, it's, it's broken. But even in its brokenness, mankind still shows forth the glory of God. So we see God's glory in his deeds of creation, but also in his redemption. That's what Paul's getting at here. Because he's talking about the glory of Christ in the life of the church, and he does so by showing how what a glorious salvation that we have. How the entire Trinity is working toward the salvation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and God's glory is then seen in the fact that we are made alive. That we are seated with him in the heavenly places. That we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are temples, if you will, of, the, of God's Holy Spirit, individually and collectively as the church. We glorify God by giving him thanks and praise for all he's done. Now, when we glorify God, it's not like we're giving him something he lacks. What we're doing is we're recognizing him for who he is. Right? God is glorious. Glory emanates from him, right? It, it just as, as light uh, comes from a fire, you know, fire emanates light and heat, God radiates, if you will, glory 
God's glory is the summation of his attributes. You could say his glory is his attributes. God is his glory. God is his attributes. All those things can be said of God. I've used this passage a number of times, but um, in Exodus 33 and 34, that's this, the part 32-33-34 is when um, the Israelites break covenant with God, right, at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has been up there 40 days. The people grow restless. They badger Aaron until he you know, says, okay, we need to make God. So they remove all their gold jewelry and they put it into the fire and they fashion a, couple, a golden calf and they begin to worship it. Then Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, shatters the tablets to show that they have broken the covenant. He breaks the covenant tablets. And then uh, the Levites are aroused and they go out and they slay a bunch of the, 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 the idolaters there. I think 3,000 die in that day. And then God says, they are a stiff-necked people. And I will not go and, and lead them. And Moses is like, if you don't lead us, where are we going to go? Right? Moses intercedes for the Lord, and um, you know, the Lord relents. You know, we'll, that's another subject for another day. Uh, he's not changing his mind, but uh, as I said, another subject for another day. But in that chapter, in chapter 33, um, verse 18, Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. It's like, how do I know that you will go before me? Give me a sign. Show me your glory. And the Lord says to Moses, I I will make all my goodness, this is verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. You want to know my glory? I'm going to do so by proclaiming my name to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion. I mean, that's just part of his name. But he says, you cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. So he says, I'll hide you in the rock, and I'll show you my afterglow, if you will. I'll pass by you, and then, and then I'll release you, and then you can see sort of the, the hindquarters. So when he does that in chapter 34, Moses is there, he's in the rock, and it says in verse 6 of chapter 34, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. As he said, I will proclaim my name to you. And that's exactly what happens here. The Lord proclaims his name. The Lord, if you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the glory of the Lord, because he says, I will let my glory pass before you. I will proclaim my name to you. And here you have a sort of a summary statement of God's attributes. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is patient. He abounds in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he's also a holy and just God. He will not, uh, he will not uh, clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity. He will visit their iniquity upon them to the third and fourth generation. So he proclaims his glory. God's glory is the summation of his attributes. The Old Testament manifestation of God's glory 
Oftentimes you get uh, theophanies. A theophany is a manifestation of God. That's what it means. Theophanos, it means a manifestation of God. And oftentimes God's glory would be manifest, particularly during this Exodus period, in the glory cloud. Right? The cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness by day and the fire that led them by night and that cloud which then descends upon uh, the temple. Right, In fact, it's often called the Shekinah, which is a derivation of the Hebrew word Shekan, which means to dwell, to settle, to tent, if you will. A Mishkan is a tent. So you've got these similar words, Shekinah, Shekan, Mishkan, the, to settle, to dwell, to tabernacle, to tent. The glory cloud descends upon and, and dwells over the tabernacle, indicating that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And that cloud is described as his glory cloud, his, his um, his, his glory cloud in Exodus 40, verse 35. The glory cloud descends. So God shows forth, if you will, he manifests himself in this cloud, which is the glory cloud, the Shekinah. We call it the Shekinah glory. In the New Testament, the glory of God is manifest in a number of ways, but in the most fullest way, it's manifest in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the glory of God. If you remember, as we've been going through, we're almost, well, we're going to finish John's gospel uh, this morning, Lord willing. But think about in the, in the opening chapter of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. We're, taught, we're told here about the Word, the eternal Word, who was there in the beginning with God, was God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and so on. Uh, and then in verse 14, this eternal word through whom everything was made became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, think of that glory cloud when, when it came down at the end of Exodus after the tabernacle was erected. The glory cloud came down and dwelt at Shekinah. It, it dwelt in the tent. Here, John is drawing in that imagery and saying that word that was there in the beginning came down and dwelt. In fact, in the, in the Greek, it's the same kind of word. It means to tent, to dwell, to settle. He dwelt among us in flesh. And then John goes on, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, you hear those those words that sort of bring to mind what, what uh, Moses heard when the name of the Lord was declared while he was hiding in the cleft of the rock. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful. So here, we beheld his glory, though it was, in a sense, veiled, right? Veiled in the flesh. It was, uh, you didn't see the full effect of his glory. You see the full, kind of a peak of it, if you will, on the Mount of Transfiguration in the uh, Synoptic Gospels. But here, uh, Jesus Christ is the summation of the glory of the Father. That's what uh, the writer of Hebrews says in the opening verses uh, there in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 3. Here, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the son is the, 
in a sense, the final revelation of God, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. They're drawing from John's opening words. And then verse 3, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There he talks about how this Jesus Christ, this final revelation of God, is the express image, right? We are made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God, right? He is the image of God. That's why Paul will say in Romans 8, we are conformed to his image. That's the idea of restoring the fallen image is that we are conformed to the true image of God, which is Jesus Christ. He is the express image of his uh, person. He is the brightness of his glory, and so on and so forth. So the glory of God is seen in the Old Testament through uh, the glory cloud. It's seen in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's also seen here, if you will, in the church. Verse 21, back in Ephesians 3. To him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ. So God is glorified, again, in his acts of redemption as he saves us and builds us into a temple unto the Lord. Uh, why? So that he can, again, his glory can dwell in us, right? The Spirit dwells in us. Again, think of that image of uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, uh, his incarnation, and now the glory, you know, after telling how we are a temple built into the Lord, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God again descends and dwells in us. The glory of the Lord is in the church through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's seen through our salvation, right? Uh, it is a um, fancy word here, monergistic. Think of mon, mono being alone, single or energistic. It's God works alone in our salvation. If you want to know how to spell that word, it's M-O-N-E-R monergistic. G-I-S-T-I-C. God works alone in our salvation. Right? That's what we saw in chapter 1. Chosen by the Father. Redeemed by the Son. Sealed by the Spirit. Even the faith that we have that, uh, to believe in chapter 2, verse 8 is a gift of God, monergistic work of God's grace through which we display then God's glory to the world around us, right? Think of what Paul says at the end of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Whatever, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us you know, do all to the glory of God. Let us show forth the glory of God. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, uh, that is, as we behold the face of Christ, as we behold uh, and contemplate on Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So God is glorified in the church by Jesus Christ. This is the glory of Christ in the life of the church. And this glory is to God, and it is for all generations, as he says here, to all generations forever and ever and ever, and ever, <laughs> and ever. How long? Forever and ever. And then he finishes with, amen, amen, truly, let it be so. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations. 
by all, you know, again, right? I mean, God is building his church. God is building his church. That's the point. And as long as there are still elect in the world to gather, God will gather them. He will build them into this church, and it will be for his glory as he does it in the life of the church. All right, in just a few minutes here, again, I just want to briefly do a a little retrospective now on the first three chapters of Ephesians. Um, Because as I said, we're next Lord's Day, Lord willing, uh, we're going to start chapter 4. And chapter 4 begins, you know, with a therefore, right? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. So now Paul is going to begin by urging them. I exhort you. I encourage you. I beseech you. I entreat you to walk worthy of this calling. Well, what calling? Well, everything that we saw in chapters 1 through 3. So, you know, we've, I've mentioned this many, many times. I keep repeating it, but again... You know, if you look at chapter 1, we have this redemption in Christ. As God is to be praised, he is to be blessed. um, Because we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So again, Paul begins this letter by showing the salvation of the church, the salvation of the people of God in eternity past before there was a world, before there was a, uh, in the beginning, before there was time, in the mind of God, he has chosen us in Christ, having been predestined. And then, again, this plan of redemption. We talk often about the covenant of redemption, if you will, this inter-Trinitarian covenant in which God covenants with himself, Father and Son, to work redemption God chooses, he sends the Son in the world to accomplish it, which is what you see in verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So uh, Jesus performs the atoning sacrifice that buys us out of slavery, that pays our sin debt, and then through faith we are given his positive righteousness. We see in verses 13 and 14, in him, in Christ, You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed. The Holy Spirit sets his seal upon us to signify that we are his, that he lays claim to us. The Holy Spirit is a down payment to show that God will accomplish the work that he began in us by choosing us and sending the Son to redeem us. God is not done with us. He seals us by his Spirit. And then he is the guarantee. This Holy Spirit is the guarantee the uh, Arabon of our inheritance. He is the, the down payment, the earnest, uh, to show that God will give us the inheritance that we have. And again, all of this is in our union with Christ. This eternal plan of redemption is accomplished in real time, as we see in chapter 2, by grace through faith, where Paul shows that how this eternal plan that was worked out in eternity past with the Trinity is now worked out in real time as dead sinners, right? That's what we were before God made us alive together. Verses 1 through 3, we were walking in our trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of this world. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We were enslaved to this world and its passions. And we were uh, willing uh, subjects, if you will, to Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. And 
it didn't matter to us. That's it, just our natural state. We were, in a sense, the walking dead. We were dead people walking. You know, you're like, well, how does that work? Well, just look at the world. <laughs> you see a lot of dead people walking out there, not in a zombie kind of way, but in a dead in their sins and trespasses kind of way. Paul uses that word dead. I mean, it, it, dead means dead. It means unable to respond. It means that no matter how hard you try to convince somebody of the truth, they will not respond until and unless God makes them alive. And God will make them alive through the preaching of his word, through the work of his spirit. So that deadness you see in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy with his great love, which he loved us, loved us how? In the son in whom we have been chosen, in, you know, before the foundation of the world. He raises us up together. That's a resurrection where he resurrects us together, sits us together with Christ in the heavenly places. And then we see that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So we are seated with him in heavenly places. That's the kind of this already, not yet. Uh, we are in the overlap of the age to come in this current age. So in a sense, in our inner man, we are seated with him in the heavenly places, though we walk in this world. Uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. And then verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 we who have been made alive, whether Jew or Gentile, are brought together. Christ, through his fulfillment of the law, has broken down the dividing wall. He joins the two together. He makes one new man out of the two, Jew and Gentile. He talks about how the Gentiles were previously lost in this world. They were without hope, without God, without all of these things. Yet, God brings those who are far off, brings them together joins us into one new man, builds us up, makes us a temple, a temple, a building in which the Spirit can dwell, which is uh, built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And then chapter 3, Paul says in that chapter, he says this was a mystery. This is something that was veiled in the Old Testament, but now is being revealed in its fullness because Christ has come in the fullness of time. It is hidden but it is hinted at and it is pointed to in the types and shadows of the Old Testament uh, system. We could talk so much more about that, but uh, I won't. All this is a mystery concealed in the old, revealed in the new. And now uh, in the remaining chapters, which we'll look at in the coming weeks, again, Lord willing, how does this mystery play out in the life of the church? How now ought we to live as those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, made alive together with Christ, built up into a holy temple. How now shall we live? Well, we'll see it's a, it's a worthy walk. It is a, we are called to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Okay? I finished this lesson earlier this week, so I'm, 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 I'm ahead. <laughs> but the, that word there, the, you know, uh, the word beseech and calling and call are all part of the same root word. So we are called to walk according to the calling by which we were called. Okay, so it's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's, it's a worthy walk, and we'll see how that plays out. That's what the remaining chapters of this book are. But again, everything we've seen thus far is more than sufficient to give praise to, and glory to God. Again, God's glory is manifest in his saving works. He, 
His glory is manifest in the works of creation. His glory is manifest in the works of redemption. Problem is, due to remaining sin, we oftentimes don't give God the proper glory that he's due, right? We fail to give God the glory that he's due. Sometimes we steal some of that glory for ourselves. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that we are doing this in our own power, but we are not. This is, a, as we said earlier, this is a monergistic work. Yes, we, we work, we obey, we, we follow God's law, but it is always in the power of the Spirit. It is always in response to what God has done for us. It is not we are working together with God. It is more God is working in and through us, and that results in our obedience. But again, the more we reflect on all that God has done, as Paul here in his prayer says, as you comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the height, and depth, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, as we are strengthened uh, with might uh, in his spirit, in the inner man, as we are filled to the fullness of God. When we do this, the more we reflect on all of this, what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do for us, the more we will give him the proper praise and glory. The more we see how much we haven't done, the more we give glory to what God has done. And God is continuing to work in the church with his exceedingly abundant power. The same gospel that is at power that is at work in us through the Holy Spirit is, is the same gospel power that is also sanctifying us, as we will see in the remaining chapters. So let us in faith know and believe that God desires to bring glory to himself in Christ through the church.